Hi, this is Peter Frampton, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. Penny Lane, right? This perfect, perfect evocation of a time and a place and a location which you just feel that it comes alive. The fireman, the barber, ev- everything is so beautifully painted in what, like two and a half minutes? Come on. Just those two songs, you know, um, Strawberry Fields and um, Penny Lane. <laughs> Every endless possibility of popular music is, is, is engaged. Today's guest is celebrated American filmmaker Ken Burns. Renowned for his documentary films and television series, many of which chronicle American history and culture, Burns' work is often produced in association with WETA-TV, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and distributed by PBS. His widely known documentary series include The Civil War, Baseball, Jazz, The War, The National Parks, America's Best Idea, Prohibition, the Roosevelts, the Vietnam War, and country music. He was also executive producer of both The West in 1996 and in 2015, Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies. Burns' documentaries have earned two Academy Award nominations for 1981's Brooklyn Bridge and 1985's The Statue of Liberty and have won several Emmy Awards, among other honors. His latest documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, was produced with longtime collaborators Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein. Welcome, Ken Burns. I understand uh, the Beatles are a subject that you like very much. Oh, my goodness. I, I love the Beatles, have always loved the Beatles, the first real musical. Um, I mean, I was conscious of stuff growing up as a little kid, the Davy Crockett and the Battle of New Orleans and Chubby Checkers, the twist. But I really fully invested in music as this outsized out of the house sort of influence with the Beatles and from with, with, I want to hold your hand. So I, I've been there from the beginning and now I've had two sets of daughters. One set are all grown up with kids of their own who are Beatles fans and the other are 17 and 11 and all girls. And they are, they get PhDs in Beatleology. I mean, they're just, they're phenomenal. Every every moment of their lives, they've been Beatles fans. <laughs> That's magnificent. And when you say you invested in the Beatles, you literally invested in I Want to Hold Your Hand. 
Oh yeah. No, no, no. I think one of the first times I ever spent my own money for music was, um, the Beatles. And I, I worked at a record store first, just for nothing, then for periodically being given a free record. Then, then I had a part-time job and I ended up before I went away to college at the full-time assistant manager of a record store in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I will tell you that the most records I've ever sold on one title was SO 383. We would write it down, which is Abbey road. <laughs> Never saw, sold more records of anything else than Abbey road. That must have been something to watch that fly off the shelves at that at that point in your life. It, it it I mean we waited we knew you know the fact that they came so hard and fast and then ended so quickly was just you know a huge part of my growing up. Uh, there are associations still that when a song finishes on the radio or on Sirius XM Beatle Channel, which my daughters insist we're tuned to all the time. Um, I, I have the muscle memory of what the next song is on the actual vinyl album. And I start to hum it before, of course, the new thing takes over. So, uh, it's, it's just, it's really imprinted, you know, etched in my hard drive. What do you think it is? And this is going to be a very tough question in a lot of ways, but I think about it all the time. I teach, the Beatles here at Monmouth University. What do you think it is that brings new generations back in droves, you know, to this band that's half dead at this point? Yeah, sadly half dead. Wish John and George were still here. Um, It's pretty simple. It's a four-letter word that uh, the FCC allows us to say over the radio. Um, but it's a real tough one for human beings. They are, and I hope that to some extent, my work is also about love. And they held to that. They struggled with it. They acknowledged the struggles. They transcended it. And it's, it's the most positive human response. We live in an age of incredible division in which it is in the interests of so many to make the other an other, to make everybody else a them, when in fact there's only us. And for all of those years, 60 years, they have been reminding us, as I've been trying to argue with my stuff, there's only us and there's no them. And they do it with the most important art form there is. It's all the rest of us, you know, in film or in dance or in sculpture or in painting or in theater or literature, you know, we aspire to music. It's the art of the invisible, Wynton Marsalis told me in our film on jazz. And if you think about it, it's the only art form that's invisible and the only art form that's the quickest, it works on you. And so when you have a message that is so uniformly about complicated things. People run away from it because they think it's sentimental or sappy or it's hard to talk about, and it is. But the very simple and the very complex answer to your essential question is love. The greatest line in all of rock and roll, in all of rock and roll, in all of music, and next to I love you, that is the love you take is equal to the love you make. Nicely said, and and, and the transcendence is, 
is so significant. And you're right, music, when it connects with people, it's very, it's penetrating. My five-year-old grandson was here last week. So we had all the attendant chaos of, you know, grandchildren in the house. But um, I had an old baseball game and I bet you do this too sometimes. I was watching a baseball game from the 1980s just to relive some moments and uh, I was enjoying it. And he said, I don't want to watch this. I want to watch new baseball. <laughs> you know, at five, he knows that he can tell just by watching the screen, you know, with the primitive titles, et cetera, that this is old baseball. Um, but then when we turned on the Beatles later, he just started yelling, Beatles, 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 right? So it, he didn't see uh, that historical disconnect with the Beatles in the same way that he did with baseball. You know, we look for those things in our lives that are sort of ever refreshing and yet, you know, constant. And that's a, a, a hugely difficult thing to achieve. There are paintings that are do, that do that. There are films that do that. There are uh, there's architecture that does that. And of course, there's music that does that. Um, it is so interesting that pieces from our ancient classical past have had and still have profound effects on us, different music for different people. And the same is true of American jazz. There's a timelessness to it. And because of the benefit of mechanical reproduction, that is to say, being able to record something, um, we have the benefit of being able to hear it as if it's just newly expressed. And I think that's true. The Beatles just fit into a category where most of the things they did live in us um, in perpetuity and seem as fresh when we hear them again. I'm still amazed at being sort of held at gunpoint and, and, and forced to listen by my daughters to the Beatles channel, how much each time I get a new appreciation for some song or I hear the exquisite harmonies that we don't talk about, you know, they, they're, influenced by the Everly Brothers and by other um, groups in the United States and the Leuven Brothers from country music and obviously the Isleys from R&B. And you, you, the, the harmonies are so perfect and the guitar playing is so perfect and the bass lines and the rhythm of Ringo and the, and the, and the kind of passion and leadership of John and the emotional power of, of Paul. And then just when you think you have one of those two seminal players pinned down, they do something, you know, that's the opposite. You, you presume that, um, Helter Skelter's sounds like a John song and it's not, you know, you expect I will and here, there and everywhere to be Paul and they are, but there are places where John surprises and Paul surprises in which you feel like for that brief period, of togetherness that they all did it and it's so interesting that we talk about Paul and John and 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 yet if you were assembling the top 10 Beatles songs three of them three of them without question and near the very top would be three George Harrison songs you know in no particular order here comes the sun something and while my guitar gently weeps I mean they are the quintessential Beatles songs, and yet we spend most of our time sort of parsing the the genius of 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 Paul and John and John and Paul together. That that's a great observation, and those three three songs make me think of of a question that 
keeps me coming back at least as a, a scholar, right? And that is, um, you know, the Beatles period of working together as a working professional group of recording artists is roughly June 1962 uh, to their last day in the studio um, as a foursome in August 1969. That's nothing, right? Seven years. And we have this amazing uh, collection of music. And, And what strikes me and what I challenge my students to think about is that creative arc that starts with a really primitive, poorly drummed version by Pete Best, God love him, all the way to the end, right? At literally the end. And there's just nothing like that in art. How do we, how do we explain that one? How do we tackle that? And as you as an artist, I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts. So, you know, these, this is the realm of the unexplainable in a way. Art is, you know, you, you, if you're building a bridge or flying an airplane or taking a science class, one and one has to equal two every single time. But what we want from our faith, what we want from our most important relationships, what we want from our art, what we want from our music is for one and one to equal three. And so they did that. This is an impossibly difficult task to be that kind of transcendent, to, to be what in fact love is about. And they, it's there in the earliest stuff. They're interested in that in a way that's sincere. And that's really hard to get in a musical industry in which they become the biggest commodity in that industry. And they stayed true to themselves. And as they mature through those second and third and fourth albums, there's experimentation going on, but they're not straying too far away from this desire that that one and one will equal three, that it that the the whole will be greater than the sum of the parts. And there's no way you can you can measure that. You can do the sum of the parts and the and you can see the whole and you that 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 mysterious difference between them is what we all search for uh, in life. And then when they hit you know, that creative period that begins, you know, I suppose that ultra creative period that begins with Rubber Soul, but certainly Revolver, and then into uh, Sgt. Pepper. And, you know, my two, the two most important albums for me are the White Album and Abbey Road. I mean, they're just, they, you know, the White Album takes every form of music practically and does it better, you know? I mean, you're looking you're looking for a good folk song? Yep, you've got it. Are you looking for some heavy metal? Yep, you've got it. You're looking for some blues? Are you looking for some rock? Are you looking for some love songs? Are you what are you looking for? And they give it to you. And what it is is not a conscious marketing decision. They're they're satisfying their own curiosity, their own itch, their own search. And search has a has an open-endedness to it, just as one and one equaling three has a kind of impossibility for us with our ordinary minds uh, to to get our, our our to get our minds around that. We just have to at some point let go and shake our hands and just say, as I do, almost every day that I think about them, and I think about them almost every day. I am so happy to have been living when they when these things came tumbling out of them. But I'm even more happy as a father to watch first one set of girls do the same thing as I did with the music and then do it to their children. And then this second set 
are just, I mean, they're, they're getting their PhDs in, in the Beatles. That's incredible. And I, I like to argue sometimes, and, and I get your point about how this is the immeasurable, they're the outlier of outliers. They're the Uber outlier, right? Um, I, I try to, I, when, I, when I deal with this in class, I often talk about George Martin and that guiding hand that helped them blow up demography like we've never seen, right? You start out with, I want to hold your hand in the United States and a very narrow really pretty narrow scope of people who are interested in buying that record, right? Pre-teens and teens. And then, my gosh, by the time you get to Rubber Soul, your grandmother is interested in In My Life. She loves Michelle. By the time you get to Revolver, you've got a single with a kitty tune on one side, Yellow Submarine, and a song that your, your crusty dad, who's entering or leaving middle age, Eleanor Rigby, is just stunned by right within those albums think of also um something that owes itself to gilbert and sullivan and vaudeville and british music halls but is one of the most beautiful songs and i sang it every night to my last two girls which i've just seen a face it's just it's just it just sort of it's a brilliant piece of uh lyric writing and it has such an intimate beautiful sense of longing and search and 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 love that it's great but I, I i agree with you completely it's it's impossible that it should have occurred with these people and i think we need to speak about george martin because there is a kind of sense that here's not the babysitter but maybe here's the governor on the engine but in fact it's george that also gives them permission to go places and to experiment in things and say why not, or to, to bring from his own repertoire the ability to bring in a harpsichord or some Baroque relationship to it. So they are able to um, escape whatever silo, convenience, and commerce which w- wishes to put them in. And that escape is exhilarating. I mean, there's not even, a, there's not, a, there's got to be a better word than exhilarating to, to describe as you, as, as you follow their, their musical journey and our musical journey. We grow up with them too. We'll be back with more from Ken Burns after these messages. We're back with more from Ken Burns. Is there any moment you can think of, as I segue to, to your great body of work, where you sort of flew without a net like that. You had a sort of basic blueprint, but then you thought, I'm going to let my, my, uh, my artistry, you know, I'm going to take it out for a spin. You know, I hadn't till this very moment, Ken, just sort of thought that maybe the Beatles had give, given me permission to bite off more than I can chew. I've done that my entire professional life you weren't supposed to be able to use still photographs to tell a, an entire story. You certainly couldn't do it for more than an hour after there were a few successful hour long things. You couldn't certainly do it for 11 and a half hours talking about the civil war. You couldn't do it for baseball. So each time I've tried to bite off more than I could chew. And I, I don't know, I don't, I can't draw a line completely, but I can't help but wonder whether that, um, 
that influence in the most important times of my life from, if you say 62, that I am nine years old uh, until 69, their last session together, all of them together. Um, I am, you know, 16 years old. You're made there, you know, and you're made in, in lots of ways. I chose not to go to uh, a local college, the University of Michigan, where I lived, where my father taught, where I could have gone essentially for free. And I instead, I instead went to an experimental college, Hampshire College. I first had wanted to be a filmmaker since I was 12, but when I arrived there, all of the teachers sort of challenged the notions of a feature film Hollywood career, and you know they call it the industry out there, in favor of something that found your own way. And I adhered, I realized that as much drama could be found in what is and what was than anything the human imagination makes up, as much drama and as much truth and then married it with a completely unrealized latent love of history so that by the time I was 22 I knew what I was supposed to do and I've just tried to continue to do that in everything and each time trying to as I said bite off a little bit more than I can chew and then learning to chew it and I work and and in much the same way one of the beauties of this the group that we're talking about is the the love of collaboration, the trust of one another's. And I have, you know, had a group of people that I've been able to work with that have the same kind of intimacy. Um, There's something outside of the industrial production of albums and pop music. Uh, The Beatles both master it and transcend it. And we've spent our entire professional life in PBS outside of the marketplace where we've got complete and total creative control and that every film that we put out is a director's cut or another way to say it, if you don't like it, it's all our fault. We can't blame it on market pressures. And that's the way you want to have it. And then not having a game plan, just wanting to touch and figure out every part of every story that touches our hearts, you know, and, and I work with extraordinary writers and co-producers and co-directors now and editors and cinematographers. And it's an intimate group. It's, it's a very much a a replication of, or you could, you could see that it bears similarities uh, to the group that we're talking about. Do you find that with, with each new project, um, this has always staggered me about writing books uh, and I've, I guess I need to get over it and just deal with it. But <laughs> um, do you find that you almost have to learn how to do each new project that it, you can't, there's no blueprint for just walking in and saying, okay, we're making, we're doing the film again. Here we go. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, you have to, it's a, it's a funny, interesting alchemy there because you want to, you want to be free of formula and yet you want to have something that is authentically yours. So if we were talking about style and, you know, you can hear an early Beatles and a late Beatles and you go, that's the Beatles, right? You know that. So, you know, style might be the authentic application of techniques, the authentic that's the emphasis on that word, that it's, that it's um, genuine. It's not artificial. It's, it's arriving at an end through sincere investigation and search. And so we 
you know, our films are most definitely have a style which people can go, oh, I know that that must be a Ken Burns film or something like that. But it is also the sense that every time you start out, you're reinventing the wheel. And you need to do that, you know, because each moment is new. Each moment has a possibility. And if you are permitting the past to swallow the present or the anxiety about the future to to make you forget the present, you don't have the possibility in this moment to grow. And I think they understood that in so many ways. Obviously, their, their religious and spiritual curiosity, um, they fed, and yet it did not um, misdirect their work. It did not imprison their work. It liberated it. And that's true even of George Harrison, who seems to, and I just say seems to, have acquired the most um, obvious, uh, you know, manifestations of the, of the, the, the Hindu uh, religion that they, they all subjected themselves to. Um, but it's there in, in everything, you know. One of the albums that we skip over, it was a single, uh, but it, it, it ended up on an album, you know, begins living is easy with eyes closed, misunderstanding all you see. It's getting hard to be someone, you know, I mean, these are heavy duty intellectual things that John is always wrestling with, always wrestling with. And what is that mitigated by? Penny Lane, right? This perfect, perfect evocation of a time and a place and a location which you just feel that it comes alive you don't need to have a music video you get it you get it the fireman you know all all the barber everything is so beautifully painted in what like two and a half minutes come on just between just those two songs you know um strawberry fields and um penny lane (laughs) you know Every endless possibility of popular music is, is, is engaged. And it can engage you on so many levels, right? And I, I believe your films do this too, where, you know, you can come in and enjoy uh, the beauty of the music and, and be happy there. Or you can go to deeper huh. and deeper levels. I mean, you know, Paul's song, like you said, is vivid and colorful and, and it is a kind of a mitigating factor for strawberry fields, but then you've got Paul breaking off this line, though she feels as if she's in a play, she is anyway. She is anyway. Yeah. Right. Come on. They, the collaboration permitted two extraordinary artists to be better, right? Just better. And we're the better for it. And, and all of that stuff, you know, uh, across the universe, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. I mean, these are deep, deep, deep songs. Um, And even the playful ones have some sense. You know, you've got, you know, when I'm 64, there's nobody that doesn't like that. And you just dismiss it as a kind of simple, you know, fun song. And yet it's all about, I mean, I remember, I heard that, I go, 64? That is so old. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm 69 now. I just turned 69 a week ago, and I'm you know 64 seems like a spring chicken to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, one of the the great uh, Beatles writers and a good friend of this show, Mark Lewison, just turned 64. Uh, you know, the great Beatles writer, and and you're right. It's we look at it f- from such a distance when we first heard Sergeant Pepper, <laughs> and yet 
there it is, uh, like this scary monument. And, and as you said, you've just passed it. Um, I wonder if we could we could talk about. So you realized at Hampshire, um, you you kind of saw the window into your life's work. Is is that right? Yeah, yeah. I don't recognize the person who came into Hampshire and the person who left. It's just really some somebody emerged from that crucible of experimentation and having to do it on yourself. You know, it's it it. There are no grades and um, courses are important, but it's really independent study that matters, and it's synthesizing and it's multidisciplinary. It isn't just finding a rut or following a career path and and just. You know, Robert Penn Warren, the novelist and poet, told me later, careerism is death. And I, I just thought of thought, right, exactly. You know, it's and I've never used the word career. I use the word professional life. Right. That's what I do. I have a professional life. A career suggests that you are being forced into some sort of rut that has its expectations and perhaps, you know, a deadening thing. And uh, he just he riveted me. Careerism is death. Uh, can you tell tell us a little about, um, uh, of course, your new project, which is, um, I've, I've been s- studying it myself in preparation for our conversation, and it feels like, it, 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 at least on paper, it's teaching about ourselves, but teaching in the best of all possible ways, you know, as in helping to understand or to look closely. Can can you tell me about the genesis of, of the Holocaust Project? Yeah, well, we have been working for seven years. The we is my co-directors, uh, Sarah Botstein and Lynn Novick, and our principal writer, my colleague, my collaborator for 40 years, Jeffrey Ward, um, on a three-part, six-and-a-half-hour series, mini-series called The U.S. and the Holocaust. And it is trying to come to terms with that, unspeakable event, uh, the nadir of civilization, one of our survivors uh, describes it in the film, and to understand and to provide the opportunity to have a reckoning about what we did and we didn't do and perhaps should have done, uh, what we knew and what we didn't know and what we should have known. And the United States correctly likes to think of itself as exceptional But in order to be exceptional, you have to ask the toughest questions of yourself. You have to be harder on yourself than um, you would expect anyone else to be, to have the kind of self-reflection, something we don't do right now. Uh, We bluster and we posture and we hide and we make the other other and we make us parts of us them. And we do everything we can to avoid this. And even now we're trying to restrict Uh, the teaching of unpleasant aspects of our history. But I can say to you that the United States did more than any other sovereign nation in letting people in. And yet if we had done 20 times the amount of people we let in, it would not have been enough and it would be a failure. And we have to understand that the impulses that permitted the worst crime, the perhaps the nadir of civilization, are in every country and particularly in ours, not particularly, just in ours as well. And that is a kind of nativism and anti-immigrant sentiments, racism, anti-Semitism. They're just around and they've been there and they reach a horrific apotheosis in the Holocaust. And that seeing it through the lens of Americans and through the ideals of who we think we are and who we sometimes therefore fail to live up to and who we actually are 
uh, at times, as well as a very difficult thing to do. But it's, um, I will not work on a more important film, let me put it that way, than this one. And I'm as proud of it as anything that we've done because it is difficult and is, is one of those things where you can't look away. Um, and now that we are at this point, a real transitional moment historically where the, the actual survivors are passing from the scene and we still have um, all of the impulses of anti-Semitism and um, violence and of denying still around us. Uh, it's really important, I think, to revisit, permit those survivors to tell their stories, permit our narrative to tell you a top-down version of what the U.S. did. And, and strangely and paradoxically, it gives you an opportunity, as, we're t- as you were talking about earlier, the many levels of something, um, to see the Holocaust and how it unfolds in a new way that may be more helpful to people. I've had even scholars say, wow, I had no idea. And and ordinary people have been, I, I, you know, what? Two million people were killed before anyone mentioned gas. Two million Jews were just shot in Poland and 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 Ukraine and all the places we're fighting now, um, Belarus and um, Lithuania and and other places. Just in what is called the Shoah by bullets. That you know it was something that was new to me I, I knew that that took place but i didn't understand the huge almost industrial scale before they got to an even worse industrial scale by creating the six killing centers in nazi occupied poland that we now know infamously like auschwitz and treblinka and sobibor and chelmno and belzic it's stunning uh, our human capability um to create war yeah, there's no bottom. Uh, the writer Daniel Mendelssohn says in her film, there's no bottom to the bad things that human beings can do to one another. And that's a terrifying thought. And there's and there's also, you're, you're made aware of, because this film echoes with present day things that are going on, rhymes, Mark Twain might say, um, that the fragility of our institutions, which are now under assault, just basic meat and potato institutions that have never in the entire 240, whatever it is, six year history of the United States have not been put into question are now completely up for grabs, that we have a responsibility to sort of study the past, uh, which is the best teacher we have to understand uh, where we are and where we may be going and perhaps uh, head some things off at the pass. Uh, the, The great uh, Holocaust scholar Deborah Lipstadt says in the film, the time to stop a Holocaust is before it begins. So at what point do we just see smoke and not cry fire, right? Even if the fire doesn't happen, even if it can be put out, it's super important for good people everywhere of whatever political persuasion to not buy into the essential lies that made it possible for the National Socialists the Nazis to rise to power and to do their hideous acts uh, for the 12 years that they were operational. I mean, look, you if you wanted to go to the hippest, coolest, most intellectually and artistically stimulating place in 1930 or 31 or 32, you would do no better than Berlin. If you're interested in music, the most interesting music, in architecture, Bauhaus, in cinema, just amazing things going on, in painting, in, in intellectual circles, in political arguments and debate. And then it wasn't. Overnight, it wasn't. It just, you know, so those who say, well, it can't happen here, um, it can happen. 
and and the impulses of of nativism and anti-immigrant sentiment, the perpetual racism we find uh, in all societies, the anti-Semitism that seems to always be prevalent, uh, ignoring the extraordinary contributions of a tiny group of people who, until 1948, didn't even have a country. Um, it's it's it just requires. Um, you know, our perpetual study and our impetu- you know, perpetual vigilance. You know, when I, the previous film I made is about the same thing in a way. When, when the Constitutional Convention was settled and the terrible and good compromises were made to create the United States of America, Benjamin Franklin walks out of the, what is now Independence Hall, the Pennsylvania Assembly Building, and a woman whose rights were not considered in the Constitution, a leading lady of Philadelphia, Elizabeth Willing Powell, walks up to him and said, what have you made, Dr. Franklin, a monarchy or a republic? And he says, a republic, if you can keep it. And there was never a doubt, even in the Civil War, that that republic would not, at least in the northern and western sections, uh, perpetuate. Um, now, you know, most Americans are fearful of the survival of the country. And I think that if you study the period that we study, and we don't just start in 1933, we wind it back to, you know, America with open immigration in the 1900s. And then, I mean, in the 1800s, and then, you know, restrict Chinese in 1882. And then in the early 1920s to begin in 21 and 24, to establish the quota system that favors only Scandinavian and Northern European Protestant, and then you know lowers the quota for Catholic and countries that have a Jewish population because of the open immigration that had brought tens of millions of people who have improved our country in innumerable ways. And 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 also I think, and I, I don't want to belabor this too much, but the phrase six million, that is to say the number of Jews murdered in the Holocaust by the Nazis, um, is an impossible number. It has an opacity to it that nobody can possibly comprehend. And so what you have to do, what you're required to do is to particularize that, understand individual stories of those 6 million. The great writer Daniel Mendelssohn, who I cited earlier, went and discovered six of those 6 million, his great uncle and his great aunt and their four daughters who perished uh, when their uh, a town in eastern Poland was overrun by the, the Nazis and murdered because they were Jewish in all sorts of different ways. Only one of them gassed. So it, it makes it kind of an interesting lesson. But the survivors that we have, you need to particularize it so that you can also appreciate the lost potentiality. What symphonies haven't been written? What gardens haven't been planted? What cures for diseases have not emerged? What What, you know beautiful works of art haven't been created what just normal things what beautiful children haven't been raised by those missing people they're an amputated limb that we still feel and still itch and still cause pain to us phantom pains though they may be they are as real as anything and we are obligated as human beings animated by the spirit of love which is the topic we're talking about exemplified in popular music by the Beatles um, to make things better. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books. 
including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie, Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. <laughs>